One of the comments you uh, often hear from non-Christians is that they quite like Jesus, but they're not so keen on God. Jesus is all loving, sacrificing, etc. While God is judgmental, so angry. People are happy to have a saviour. They are happy to have someone who always forgives, who is long-suffering and patient and kind. But they don't want a God who wants to rule over their lives, to keep them accountable, who demands obedience and commitment. This week I I read a response to um, Darwin's theory of evolution from a Victorian lady, a wife of an Anglican bishop, who wrote to her friend, My dear, let's hope that it is not true, but if it is, then let us hope it does not become widely known. The, um, The people of Jesus' day were like that, weren't they? They were quite impressed with Jesus. He spoke well. Perhaps they didn't quite get what he was on about when he suggested that the words of Isaiah were fulfilled in their midst that very day, as we heard last week. But they were amazed at how well this son of a carpenter spoke. That, of course, was the problem. When they looked at Jesus, all they could see was the son of Joseph. Hare was the proverbial local boy made good. Can you imagine them turning to one another and asking, isn't this just Joseph's son? Isn't this just little boy we watched growing up all those years? But of course, the answer to those questions is no, not even close. Luke has already made it, more, made it more than clear several times already. The angels tell the shepherds, to you is born this day in the city of David a saviour who is the Messiah, the Lord. Simeon tells Mary, this child is destined for falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. When he's taken to the temple at age 12, he himself explains, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And then at his baptism, the voice of God rings out, you are my son, the beloved with you I am well pleased. Finally, as I spoke a couple of weeks ago, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to God himself. No, this isn't just Jesus the carpenter's son. This isn't even Jesus the great teacher, the wise speaker of parables and wise saying. And it certainly isn't Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Even Satan acknowledged that. And the things that he's come 
to do go far beyond the small town vision of these small town people. It's amazing, isn't it, how self-centred human beings can be. Here they are face to face with the greatest person that ever lived and all they want is to get a buzz from seeing a miracle take place, a healing perhaps. All they want is to see that they're important enough for him to do something spectacular in their hometown. Have you ever asked somebody who they'd like to have come to dinner? Most people would name some famous person, wouldn't they? Yeah? Somebody famous, someone they looked up to, someone well-known, perhaps a sporting hero or a movie star. And why would they choose that person? Well, I don't think it's because... Um, there'll be good table talk, not for the scintillating conversation. No, I'm going to suggest they do it so they can tell their friends later that they had this famous person to dinner. Most people's motivation is self-serving, and that's the case here. And Jesus points it out fairly bluntly, even unkindly. See how he answers them. He points them to their own history as a warning that God is interested in the whole world, not just the Jewish nation. It's almost as if he gives them a warning, isn't it? He reminds them how Elijah was treated by his own people. Do you remember the story of Elijah? Elijah started out in Israel proclaiming God's word to the people and especially to Ahab, the king. But it soon got to the stage where it wasn't safe for him to stay in Israel. Ahab and Jezebel were out to kill him. And so God sent him to a place called Zarephath in Sidon, over by the Mediterranean, outside the borders of Israel. And while he was there, he provided not just for Elijah, but for the Gentile widow and her son as well. Similarly, in the time of Elijah, Elijah's successor, he says there were many lepers in Israel, as indeed there still were in Jesus' day. But there's only one leper who's healed by Elijah, and that was Naaman the commander of the Syrian army, at a time when Syria and Israel were involved in running battles. I guess a certain amount of racism is inherent in every culture. Every culture thinks of itself as inherently better than all others. We're more civilised, more advanced, more technologically developed more honest, less cruel, less corrupt, more adaptable, you name it. And that was particularly so of the Jews at this point of time. They saw themselves as God's special people. They knew their history. 
They'd read the words of Isaiah, where God says, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This self-identity was etched into their thinking. God had a special plan for their nation. For their nation. But now Jesus comes along and reminds them that God cares about all his creation. Every person and tribe and nation is precious in God's sight. If God could send Elijah and Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, to people outside of Israel, then he could certainly send his Messiah to those people as well. Well, that was too much for the people of Nazareth. They changed from admiration to anger. How dare he suggest that God would prefer a a Syrian woman over the people of Israel? How dare he cast aspersions on the people of his own town? Who does he think he is? That, of course, is the big question, isn't it? But they don't have time to stop and ponder the answer. They rise as a mob and drive him towards the t- out of the town and towards the top of a cliff where they figure they can throw him off and be done with him. But as I said, this isn't just Joseph's son. This isn't an ordinary human being who can be manhandled at will, disposed of when his demands become uncomfortable. No, this is the Son of God. They wanted to see a miracle, and he performs one. Though, ironically, they don't actually see him do it, as he just passes through the crowd. He passes through their midst and is gone. They had their chance, but they've blown it. They've rejected the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord, And now they've lost him, gone to Capernaum. But of course, he isn't lost to the rest of the world, is he? The message that he brings that salvation is now available to people of every nation. The people of Nazareth may have not liked hearing it, but the rest of the world rejoices. Listen to how John summarises these events in the beginning of his gospel. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Jesus comes as the new Adam, the perfect son of God, so that people everywhere might receive the perfect righteousness that he gives to those who believe in his name. Last week, we saw that Jesus came to bring good news. Freedom for those imprisoned somewhere. Sight for those who are blind. Freedom for the oppressed. And an experience of the Lord's favour. And now we see that freedom, that good news, is for all people throughout the world. When I look at my life, I see quite a bit of failure and sinfulness But when I look at Jesus, when I look at Jesus, all I see is one who came to offer righteousness to all who believe in him. 
Jesus was not just a great teacher and healer. He is the risen Lord and Saviour, the Son of God, who died and rose so we could be made righteous in God's sight. My prayer should be our prayer, that we all might hold tight to that gift of eternal life and that we might want to share that good news with those who we know haven't yet received it. Amen.